This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, coming to you from Gadigal Land. And this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. After the landmark AUKUS announcement, reactions have been rolling in. At the Kabuki show in San Diego a day or so ago, there's three leaders standing there. The former Prime Minister, Paul Keating, launched a blistering attack on the government, calling AUKUS the worst deal in history. So what's happened is the military have taken over the foreign policy. The response from China was even more pointed. Accusing Australia of participating in an arms race. But despite all of this sound and fury, are we any closer to understanding the geopolitical risks of this momentous commitment? Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of News Mike Tisher about the need for scrutiny of the AUKUS agreement. It's Friday, 17th of March. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So amid all the talk of AUKUS this week, what I've noticed is that a lot of us are ending the week feeling a bit more confused than we started it. Why is that, Lenore? Um, I think that this announcement came with, you know, brass bands and flying flags and everybody kind of marching in tune. And to a certain extent, I understand why that might be. This isn't responding to nothing. You know, Xi Jinping is more authoritarian and through his words and deeds has made it clear that China has an intention to take Taiwan one way or another at some point and to exert more economic and possibly military influence in the Asia-Pacific. There is a military arms race going on. I mean, China is increasing its military spending by 7%. The US is increasing its military spending. Japan has said that it's going to double defence spending by 2027. So there's a military arms race in our region. There is a less secure strategic outlook in our region. So this entire announcement is responding to something. But I guess the thing that strikes me is that we're making a decision that has amazing and long-term ramifications, military ramifications, strategic ramifications, economic ramifications. It's predicting what will happen in politics and what will happen technologically three, four decades out. It's this incredibly consequential roll of the dice And what strikes me is that there's such little scrutiny of it. Everybody is sort of falling in behind and marching in tune. And even when you acknowledge that there are reasons why we might be going down this path, I feel like it needs a lot 
a lot more scrutiny than it's getting. Yeah, and I remember when we talked about AUKUS when it was first announced on this podcast, we talked at the time about how it was then a little bit hard to scrutinise because we didn't have enough information. We have more information now. So, Mike, let's go through some of those ramifications that Lenore just mentioned. Should we start with sovereignty? So I guess that one hasn't changed all that much based on what we've learnt this week. We are tying ourselves very tightly to, obviously, the US and, to a lesser extent, the UK's plans. It's very unclear that if the US proposed to engage in military action with China or anyone else, that we would be able to stand aside and say, no, no, we're a sovereign country, despite the fact that we're (laughs) using the subs that have been developed in this tripartite agreement over many decades. Uh, we, we, We don't think we should be getting involved in that military adventure. So we'll kind of sit this one out. That sounds completely implausible from this distance, at least. The questions about sovereignty, I think, have only, if anything, increased given the details that were announced this week. I mean, I think we need to go back to what exactly is the threat that we are thinking that we're countering. And the government keeps saying it's all about deterrence. But we know deterrence is just another word for an arms race. I mean, you know, I lived in Germany as a teenager when Pershing II missiles were stationed there. We know where this ends. How will China respond? Well, they've reacted predictably negatively, but surely it's naive to think that they'll just leave it at that, that, you know, that China won't try and seek closer relationships with other countries of its own, even closer ties with Russia, for instance. The government says it's all about keeping Australia safe. But as Paul Keating pointed out, and I think on this particular point, I think he's right, there's not really a direct military threat to Australia. The threat is to the region, the threat is to really vital shipping routes that Australia relies on. And, you know, Deputy Prime Minister Richard Miles on the 7.30 report, he's talked about how we're entirely reliant on imports of fuel. We don't refine fuel here anymore. So that's just one thing that a conflict in the South China Sea or the East China Sea might start to disrupt and with really big consequences for us. But to what Mike was talking about, to my mind, that really does raise questions of sovereignty. No, the government tries to interpret that question very narrowly, like who will salute to whom on the ships or will they be under Australian command? Like, I'm sure they've got assurances on that. But we're now so entwined in the US that do we have separate objectives to them or or are we integrated into their objectives? Because The US actually calls all of this integrated deterrence. That's what they call it. And we're part of the integration. And I can't see how that cannot raise questions of our ability to make independent decisions. One of the other risks, Lenore, that has been discussed is about nuclear non-proliferation. What are the major concerns there? Well, there's, you know, lots of people have raised various concerns. The governments, all of them say that they've consulted with the IAEA and that it's all okay. Uh, We learnt today from our our reporter, Julian Bordry in Washington, that the IAEA will be sort of inspecting the subs when they go out and come back to port because, you know, the nuclear reactor is all welded in. You can't get in and out of it. And I guess they want to make sure that it still is all welded in, I suppose. But I guess the question I have is if this loophole is fine for us to go through for the nuclear weapon states to sell us a nuclear-powered vessel, is that loophole available to others? Could Russia, I don't know, sell a nuclear submarine to Iran? Or, you know, does it set a precedent is the question I would be asking. 
there have been some criticisms raised by not just Paul Keating, but other experts about the viability of this technology by the time it even gets here. What are those concerns? Okay, so um, I'm not an underwater warfare (laughs) expert, I should say, right at the outset. But, you know, I've been reading some things. So the ANU put out a study called Transparent Oceans, which found that scientific and technology advancements could make it really difficult to hide submarines by the 2050s. Well, the whole point of these submarines is meant to be that, you know, you can't find them, that they're transparent. So that raises a question. There was, I thought, a really interesting piece in the Sydney Morning Herald by a former diplomat who argued that the whole concept of manned or person submarines are nearing the end of their utility because of these developments with smart sea mines and unmanned underwater vehicles. And by the time we get the submarines in the 2030s, it'll be too dangerous to deploy them in contested areas. Well, they're not meant to be, I didn't think, deployed just around Australia. So I need to know, and as I said, I'm not an expert in underwater warfare, but I would really like to know more about where people think this technology is going and exactly how the capabilities of these submarines fit with those potential technological changes. I think that's a really valid question to ask. But just the sheer timescale of the thing should give you pause, I think, about the technology because the timescale is equivalent to designing weapons for the Second World War before the First World War, but with the difference that technology is moving at a more rapid scale than than now than it was then. And for a non-expert, it raises huge questions about whether that's a good idea to pin your faith in something, A, just the technology that we know about now, and B, an actual design of a submarine that hasn't even been, isn't even on the drawing board yet, and the ones that will come into operation, in theory, in the 2050s, yeah, seems optimistic, to say the least. Mm. And I guess that brings us to cost. In the Sydney Morning Herald, that David Livingston, who you've just mentioned, the North, said it's the biggest transfer of wealth from Australia to another country ever, is it worth it for technology that may not still be viable? Well, I mean, these are the strategic decisions that the government is weighing up. And I don't think we can actually say that. I can't make a fully considered decision on that sitting here with the information that I have. I don't have the government's security briefings. And even if I did, we know that security briefings have been, you know, somewhat inaccurate in the past. I don't have all the technological information, but we know that in the out years, the costs are enormous. In the short term, not so much. I think it's $9 billion over the first four years, but $6 billion of that's already in the budget from the French subs that we didn't end up getting. Mm. But out after that, we're transferring an enormous cost, an enormous bill to our kids and our kids' kids. So it's definitely a question worth asking. And that's one hell of an opportunity cost there. That is one hell of a an amount of money, $368 billion and rising, that isn't being spent on other things. I think that's what proper scrutiny needs to think about. And I think it's really interesting how these decisions were taken without that scrutiny. So as we know, Scott Morrison is very proud that he kept it so secret he didn't even tell the Department of Foreign Affairs. Well, I don't know, maybe it would be good to get the view of the Department of Foreign Affairs. Labor locked into it, as Paul Keating was so critical of, within 24 hours. Now, there is no criticism from the Labor Party, not from the backbench at all. Now, party unity is a good thing, but a decision this big surely should be sort of 
I don't know, stress tested. Mm. And as you say, Lenore, you know, recent history tells us we should be sceptical of big military announcements, right? Well, yes. And also, you know, we're not just predicting technology into the future. We're predicting the political stability and the political makeup of these allies into the future. So, okay, fine, it was President Biden in San Diego, but it could be President Trump Mm. by the time this starts. And then it could be President, I don't know, Trump Jr. or whomever. And the American democracy has been electing some pretty erratic people The UK has had a pretty rough period in its politics as well and has a very weak economy, as Malcolm Turnbull pointed out this week. So, yeah, of course there are natural allies and partners, but we're really tying ourselves in for a very long time in a period where everything is pretty much in flux. And you can imagine the budget discussions, you know, and I don't know, to pick a random year, 2029 or something, 2035, whatever, saying, oh, well, yeah, we really would like to, you know, circumstances have changed. We need to shore up the budget by making savings. But there's this massive roadblock in there that is unmovable, unchangeable over so many years. That's always going to be there. And so it's always going to fall on something else. I mean, for example... We're talking about the stage three tax cuts now. It's a huge amount of money in the in a over a much shorter time span, but those are reversible if there's the political will to do so. But this thing, regardless of what the political parties might think about it, it's going to be locked in before too long. Well, and we don't actually know yet what we have contractually obligated ourselves to, what we've signed up to, when and how there might be gateways to get out of it, or at least not that I've read. Until now, but there will come a time when we're signing mm. contracts for huge amounts of money that will lock us in over decades. Keating and Turnbull have been critical of the media. There have been some pretty extraordinary front pages of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age in the past week. Do you think the criticisms have been reasonable? I think that there are parts of the media that have been pretty uncritical of this or even sort of cheerleading. I mean, the headline in The Australian was our 368 billion missile-packed freedom fleet of submarines. Freedom fleet. I mean, the actual news story was quite straight, but the headline writers chose to talk about $300 billion worth of subs powered by weapons-grade nuclear material in an escalating arms race as a freedom fleet. I don't think that was sort of an uncritical headline. On the other hand, the strategic environment, as we've discussed, is shifting. So I don't think it's prudent to just dismiss the whole thing straight away as a warmongering waste of money. I think we need to unpick it. We need to really test it. I think, as I've said, that should have happened before we were locked into the decision. But to go to the Sydney Morning Herald and the Ages front pages, their Red Alert series, I can understand where that editorial concept would have come from. If you were sitting in conference and thinking, okay, we've got this AUKUS decision coming up and we've got the defence review coming up and these are sort of very technical, difficult conversations to get readers interested in, I know, let's have a panel of experts and put out a communique and try and sort of test the hypotheses about how this could play out. Like I, I get where that came from. I think the problem was that the panel they chose was not balanced. It was very hawkish. And that was certainly the view of many experts, a range of experts that Margaret Simon spoke to for a piece that she wrote for Guardian Australia about 
this series. I mean, they sort of talked about it being hyperbolic and over the top. And I think in a way it was, you know, it talked about within 72 hours of a conflict breaking out over Taiwan, Chinese missile bombardments and devastating cyber attacks pummeling Australia. I mean, I I feel that is quite hyperbolic. I do think that it was an over-the-top intervention, even though I can sort of see where it might have come from editorially. Yeah, I mean, talking of hyperbolic and over-the-top, I thought it was really unfortunate the way that Keating's um, criticism were couched, kind of insulting individual journalists and in person at at the press club and also in his written remarks about Peter Harcher and others who were part of the series are kind of really distracted from the sort of discussion that we would hope to be having, which is, you know, along the lines of what Lenore was saying, that we haven't had enough constructive criticism or constructive analysis of of the whole AUKUS project and his colourful approach is kind of entertaining and sort of nostalgic for some people in some ways, but got into really quite unpleasant areas, I thought, mm. and being personally abusive to journalists in the press club is it, not, not, yeah, really, yeah. not really helpful. I agree, and I think you can question those stories without getting personal about it. And in fact, he responded to one quite valid question about China's treatment of Uyghurs by yeah. personally attacking the journalist who asked it and not answering the question. Mm. And, and sort of glossing over China's actual human rights abuses in in Xinjiang and its behaviour in Hong Kong and its threats to Taiwan is not, you know, they can't be ignored regardless of whether you think AUKUS is an appropriate response to that. To, to sort of say, well, you know, we don't really know what's going on with the Uyghurs. Is, is mm. And anyway, of, Modi's bad too. Really <laughs> bad, yeah. And what about ism about, about India and, and Japan and other places is just doesn't get us to a better resolution of how we should respond to China's actual threatening language and behaviour. Okay, now let's talk about the economic risks. Um, Lenore, do you want to start? I do think this decision has to make the stabilisation of our relationship with China more difficult. You know, it has to kind of limit our options. I think the government, in particular Penny Wong, has done a good job of trying to sort of bring that relationship back to a less hostile level over the period that Labor's been in office. We don't know how China will react and they are obviously reliant on our exports. Economic relationship will have to be to some extent, under strain. And I assume that's why the government's going to such lengths to diversify our trading relationships, for example, through Anthony Albanese's visit to India and, you know, becoming as friendly as he possibly can with Narendra Modi. Just staying on Penny Wong, Keating was quite critical of her this week. Does this AUKUS deal make her push for diplomacy harder? I thought it was really interesting the view that the historian Professor James Curran put in the piece that Margaret Simons wrote for us, which was that he had been picking up in his discussions with US security experts a sort of frustration with the success that Penny Wong was having in stabilising our relationship, that in fact the sort of forks in the US weren't happy about that, didn't like that, kind of thought that it might mean that Australia hedged its bets. I mean, that's my words, not his words, but I thought that was a really interesting take on it as well. You know, she's been trying to tread a really delicate line between softening the rhetoric of the previous government towards China, not responding in really heated fashion to their more provocative statements, having an extensive dialogue with many of our nearest neighbours in the Pacific and Southeast Asia about 
trade and about all the things that one does as a foreign affairs minister, no doubt including a lot of talk about how to respond to China and generally trying to project an image of Australia in the region as a, you know, a partner, a cooperative, someone who wants to be cooperative, while at the same time hopefully putting our trade relations with China back on track, but without shying away from criticising them where that seems appropriate. And that's a really hard line to walk, I think. And to, from the outside, it looks as though she's been doing it pretty successfully, I think. So I thought the criticism from Keating was on her personally was pretty unfair. Whether the AUKUS decision will change the reckoning on that remains to be seen, but they have known about it and they have known it's coming for a while, so you would think it's manageable, but it's, it hasn't made her task any easier. For that way. No. Next, OnlyFans impersonators, which will leave you speechless, and rare moments of empathy that sparked a nuanced conversation. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Mike, what is it for you this week? So I want to talk about the uh, UK columnist Adrian Childs. So for people who don't know him, Adrian Childs, Guardian columnist, TV and radio personality, very well known in Britain has written a column about how he has a naked lookalike who is making money, lots of money on OnlyFans. I don't know if I can comment on this story (laughs) except to say you have to go and read it. Uh, Adrian Charles is a sort of regular-looking, you know, middle-aged man. (laughs) And there are... But the funniest thing was the things that the lookalike was allegedly doing on OnlyFans as an Adrian Uh, Charles lookalike that was hilarious. Are we even allowed to say what they were? I'm not sure. Yeah, well, I, think, I think we have to. It would be unfair to our listeners not to give them a little uh, taste. Uh, so he says, they asked me to strip while reading out the weekend's football scores, to describing Brummie landmarks. He's from Birmingham, or from the West Midlands. Describing Brummie landmarks, but it soon got darker, such as... Someone paid me £500 to read out Charles's column in The Guardian while performing a sex act on myself. <laughs> so, yes, there's many, much more in the vein and worse. But it is a laugh out loud column. It is, it is a very funny column uh, and really one for the child's aficionados. Okay, Lenore, can you top that? <laughs> I cannot and mine isn't funny at all. But I really like Sean Kane's summary piece about Adelaide Writers Week. There was so much controversy about that festival ahead of time. But actually, it succeeded in having civilised disagreement and conversation. I spent two days there two weekends ago, and that was certainly what I saw. And I think Shan summed it up really well in the piece that she wrote. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lenore. Thanks, Gabs. Thanks, Mike. Thanks a lot. And how are you feeling? You've been sitting there very patiently, but 
Are you in pain with your broken elbow? Uh, not in pain. It does explain why I didn't have any notes today because I can't type at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if that uh, came across in, in my sort of less than usually precise uh, comments, I'm sorry. And you couldn't put your headphones on by yourself. <laughs> so send your well wishes to <laughs> fullstory at theguardian.com. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening or leave us a rating or review if you can. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Camilla Hannan. The executive producer is me, Gabrielle Jackson. I hope you have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.